Hey, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. I am Katie Weaver. I am here with my co-host and sister, Christy Brower. Welcome. Hey, everybody. Excited to be here for episode four, Numero right. Quattro. Woohoo! Yeah, we are. We're rocking and rolling. <laughs> right. So we are doing this uh, production, I guess we'll call it, yeah, as a podcast. But it is also, of course, a video that goes up on YouTube. And you guys can find that over on YouTube under True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. But you can also find it just about anywhere that podcasts. So lots of easy ways to listen or watch. So we want to make sure you guys know how to connect with us. And of course, while you're there, if you will subscribe, like, comment, and share if you like what you're hearing, that is enormous for us. And we appreciate you. So we do so much that helps other people find us, helps us keep doing what we're doing. That's what we want. It certainly helps us to grow. So lots of good stuff. Well, of course, we are also like one week into the uh, coronavirus Malie, <laughs> more than a weekend, I guess, but we're, you and I are both yeah. a week into uh, quarantine. Yeah. And I know uh, you quarantined this weekend by going to the mountains for a few days. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Seems that like was a good quarantine one. to me. Well, and you know, some people are like, oh, you shouldn't be going to campgrounds. I'm like, oh, no, no, you don't know Idaho. Right. <laughs> this is not a campground, dude. This no. is just in the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. built the fire pit like there's right there's no campground there's no other people you know no just us. right absolutely yep yeah I, it's awesome i think it's brilliant and uh i think it we'll- was great nice to get out of the house for a little while and get to be outside and stuff because yeah. yeah i mean if you're if you're listening to this in the future you're going to look back on this time and remember oh yeah that was a rough go for humanity <laughs> for sure for sure yeah. Well, you know, we joined you guys for a couple of campfires and we took a little drive this afternoon. But yeah, yeah, it's been seven days since I have more than that now, I guess nine days since I've really allowed myself to do much of anything besides take a car ride here and there. But at any rate, we're all Thank God we can still do that, right? <laughs> that has saved me a few times. Like I'm just gonna go drive around because yeah. Yeah. You know, I always wanted to stay home until I have to. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then you don't want to. And there's all this stuff you need to do or somewhere you want to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. But it is what it is. And here we are. So anyway, it's a, it's all good. We're both doing well. So we have a very interesting case today. I feel like we say that every week. Yeah. We have a very interesting case. <laughs> because we always do. Mm-hmm. This one is wackadoodle, guys. Uh-huh. Wackadoodle. It is. It reminds me a little bit just in the uh, the the turns and, you know, tips and turns of the Vallow case that's going on in my town right now. You know, there's yes. just a lot to it. So yeah. we're going to unpack as much of it as we can today in this broadcast. And then, of course, we will do the psychic analysis and let you know what we believe happened from a psychic perspective. So that's what's going to happen today here on the show. So the case was actually one that was brought to us from a listener, from a friend. Yay, who, thank you. Yeah, who brought us a case neither of us had ever heard of before, which yeah. was fun. Uh, we've never heard of it, most likely because it happened uh, about the same time we were born. Yes, yes. <laughs> actually, a little before either of Slightly us were born. Slightly prior, yeah. Yeah, and happened in England. 
And I think neither of us, uh, you know, we just didn't know. So it's been an interesting one to fall down the hole of, the rabbit hole of, to do a lot of research. This is the case of Lord Lucan, the vanishing of Lord Lucan, uh, and of course, uh, the prior events that uh, led to his vanishing. So I think we'll just, we'll start at the very beginning and tell the tale. So Lord Lucan was a gentleman that, of course, lived in, um, lived in England, lived in London, actually. And mm-hmm. he was married to a lady by the name of Veronica. That was Lady Lucan. Veronica yeah. Duncan was actually her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, Veronica, they... She was a secretary and then a model in London. They met in 1963 at a golf event. They were both kind of high society people, you know, living a high yeah. life in London. And they were engaged in 1963 and, and married in 1963. He was 29 and she was 26, which for the time she was really getting on. He was this. <laughs> she says, did yeah. you, do you remember what she says? She said, I was getting uh-huh. very close to be putting, be being put on the shelf. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. That in an interview with her, that is what she said. Yep. Yeah. And so they got married. They immediately got pregnant and had three children. And <laughs> not so all they, at once. Not all at once. No. I mean, it, it took a little time, but they yeah. had. They, they, they had spread a, them out. True. They had a daughter and then they had another daughter and then they had a son. And, and in fact, it was, she had postpartum depression and in bearing two daughters that created a lot of stress on her for not creating an heir. And it was a big uh, consternation in their marriage that she had not produced him a son. And finally, third baby was the charm. Uh, Lady Lucan struggled though with some depression with, uh, well, with postpartum depression. And I think with, you know, asshole husbanditis as well, you know, uh, yes, it was a most big definitely, part of her problem. I, I think that is a clinical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, it seems like a clinical word. Yeah. Assholeitis. Yeah. Assholeitis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Assholeitis. Uh, he, this guy definitely had a se- severe case, I think. Oh, didn't he though? Mm-hmm. So he had been quite the fast man, you know, he loved to uh, race speedboats, though he, by her claims, uh, wasn't very good at it, but, <laughs> but he, he loved did it. have a tendency to sink them. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he did. He, uh, he was a professional gambler. So he tried working for a while in a, you know, a, a more conventional setting and decided that he could win more money in one night on a hand than he could make you know, in a year in a regular job. So he wasn't ever much of a good worker, but his family came from money. And not too long after they were married, his father died and left them a pretty decent inheritance. Yeah. And they, they bought their home. Uh, and, and this is the home that Lady Lucan lived in. Well, she it was in and out, but she, this was the home that she had raised her children in for the most part. It was, well, until she lost them, but uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> but, um, she actually died in this home uh, when she was 80. But at any rate, uh, so so that's the, the beginning of the story. Things were rough. They were rough financially. Uh, obviously, things were rough in the marriage. And he was con- constantly trying to prove just how crazy she was, you know, trying to force his hand with courts and with psychiatrists and tried to have her committed. And ultimately, I mean, basically clinically, they all said, 
nah, I mean, she's a little depressed. Yeah. You know, who wouldn't be married, being married to you, the guy with assholeitis. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, he, he was the cause, I think of most of her issues, but at any rate, yeah. they ended up, uh, so they ended up, I think they weren't actually divorced, but they were estranged. And the way he had managed to get the custody set up, she was required to have a nanny. And he was not. When he had the kids, he didn't have to have a nanny. But because she was, you know, just so crazy, she had to have a nanny. Right. But he had to pay for that nanny. So he kind of screwed himself because he had forced his hand with all of this, you know, trash talk on her to rug her through court she ended up winning yeah but you know and and one custody of the kids and he had visitation of the kids and that's how it went but because of all of his antics basically it backfired on him because the court said okay fine if she's not safe to take care of the kids alone she will have a nanny a full-time nanny and you'll pay for it <laughs> so right i the think it's not that more smart of really Right. He's not oh, that no. bright through this entire story. He's not that. Yeah. Bright. No. And interestingly, his friends called him Lucky. Yeah, that was his nickname, right? <laughs> his friends called him Lucky. And I'm wondering why. Was that a play on words? I mean. <laughs> right. Yeah. Was that like the giant guy called Tiny? Because he right? wasn't Lucky. He no. lost way more money than he won gambling. And, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Totally. Well, at any rate, uh he was going broke paying because he also had to pay for both his attorney and hers. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, she was dependent upon him financially for everything as were the kids. And so at the end of the day, and then of course had to pay for two households. And so he was bleeding money. So that's kind of where, where things were on his end. Well, they had hired a nanny. She hadn't been with them very long. Uh, She was 29 years old. Her name was Sandra Rivet. She was 5'2", which was about the same height as Lady Lucan. She was just one dress size larger than Lady Lucan. So they were very close to the same size. She was a redhead and Lady Lucan was a blonde. And why am I telling you all of this? Well, you'll find out soon. It's going to matter. <laughs> it's soon. going to matter very soon. Well, Lady Lucan had an arrangement that on Thursday nights, Sandra Rivet had the night off. And she would typically go uh, out to dinner with her boyfriend. Well, as luck would have it, one particular Thursday night, Sandra Rivet ended up staying in and didn't do so. Well, about a little before nine, around 8.30, I guess, she came to, and this was in 1974. I should tell you the date. That matters. Uh, Let's see. I do have it. I have a lot of notes on this case. Okay, so this was it. the 7th of November, 1974. So it was a little before nine. Sandra knocked on her door, Lady Lucan's door, and she and her older daughter were in her bed watching TV and asked if she would like a cup of tea. Apparently, this was a nightly ritual that Sandra would always make a cup of tea for Lady Lucan before bed, that she took tea before bed. Okay, so mm-hmm. normal. Well, Sandra never came back. And at some point, Lady Lucan said to her daughter, I wonder what's taking her so long. And she headed out to find her. And the the way their apartment or their home was uh, built, the kitchen was in the basement. And everything else was on upper floors. It was a big home. 
mm-hmm. you know, for, for the times and for the city. It was a big home. And so she headed down the stairs to the basement down to and, and stood at the top of the stairs and called for Sandra. Well, when she did that, a man grabbed her from behind and attacked her. And she started to scream and he told her to shut up in her ear and she recognized her husband's voice. Well, she fought back tooth and nail mm-hmm. and managed to kind of wedge herself on the balcony or on the banister and hold on because he tried to throw her down the stairs. Uh, she actually grabbed him by the testicles and disarmed him for a minute <laughs> and kind of, uh, yeah, me too. Should have grabbed a little harder anyway. So eventually, finally, they end up down the stairs and into the kitchen and he beats the holy hell out of her, but at some point finally stops. And what she discovers is that he has murdered the nanny and she's terrified for her life. And it becomes apparent pretty quickly that he thought she was the nanny. So what he did was he took the light bulb out. So he had already snuck into the basement. He knew her routine. He knew she'd be coming downstairs to make tea. And he knew that the nanny had Thursday nights off. So this was his perfect chance. If he could get rid of her, then he would have custody of the kids. He could move back into the house. A lot of his financial woes would disappear. So this was all what he was gambling on, obviously. Well, Lady Lucan was obviously a very smart lady and Mm -hmm. knew her life was in dire danger. Obviously, he'd already bludgeoned someone to death with a steel pipe, a lead pipe. Yeah, that's what he killed her with. It was a lead pipe that the tip of it had been dipped in plaster. Figure that out. But that's what he killed her with, the nanny. And that's what he beat uh, Lady Lucan with as well. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Lady Lucan uh, knew that she was going to have to find a way out of this house. And if she, you know, if she didn't get out of the house, he would kill her. So she started playing along. And and basically was like, oh, dear, look what you did to the nanny. Well, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and said, let's let's figure out what to do to the body. Let's take care of it. I can stay in the house for for a time until my injuries on my face heal and it'll be okay. No one ever has to know this happened. Mm -hmm. And he must have been pretty traumatized. I don't think that it in this guy's core, he was necessarily a killer. You know, I mean, he was, Mm -hmm. but, you know, he he was pretty. pretty freaked out and shaken up and in shock. And she really played to that. So eventually she said, let's go upstairs. He took her upstairs to her bedroom to help her clean up because she was covered in blood as was he. Yeah. Well, they walked into their bedroom and their daughter was in the bedroom and he told her to go to bed and she ran in her bedroom and closed the door. And Lady Lucan laid on the bed. I mean, she was quite hurt. She was quite injured. And he walked into the bathroom and turned both of the faucets on, trying to clean all of the blood off of himself, you know, to hell with her. But, right. but that's what he did. So while he did that, she realized that while he had that much water on, he probably wouldn't be able to hear her. Mm-hmm. So she slipped out of bed and ran down the stairs and ran down the street to a pub and ran into the pub. So this woman, you know, in her night clothes, Dripping in blood, runs into this club and starts screaming, there is a killer in my house. He killed the nanny. He tried to kill me. He is still in the house with my children. So she doesn't actually tell them, at least, you know, the accounts say she doesn't actually tell them that it's her husband, but no matter, but maybe it was better she didn't because. I suspect it was. I bet you they took it more seriously because she didn't say that. Yeah. 
So and she so of course they call the police and they go to the house and, and they put her in an ambulance. She is injured. Mm-hmm. And his mother shows up and gets the children and takes them away. Yeah. Tells the police that the children are a ward of the state, which is entirely untrue. And takes them, which on one hand, somebody needed to take them because their mother was on the way to the hospital, you know, and had been near killed. And there was a murder in the basement. You know, I mean, it was right for someone to come take the kids, but pretty rich, you know, but that's what happened after Mm -hmm. a phone call from him. So we'll get to the phone call. But yeah, at any rate, at some point there, he came out of the bathroom and discovered she was gone and panicked and fled. So he gets in his car, which was a borrowed car. He had borrowed a car from a friend. Apparently, his car was having some battery problems, and he'd been driving someone else's car for a while. But at any rate, so he takes off, and he goes to a friend's house. So the friend is Madeline Florman, uh, a friend of the Lucans. She doesn't live that far away. And he goes to their house and starts ringing the doorbell. Well, she didn't answer the door because she thought that... uh, that it was just kids like, you know, knocking and running or something. Cause it was after 10 o'clock, it was 10 30. So he didn't, she didn't actually answer the door. So I always wonder how they knew, you know, (laughs) Oh, that's because he called her. That's right. He called her later and told her that he knocked on the door. Anyway, at 10 30, he calls his mother who tells her there's been a catastrophe at the house. And can she go gather up the children? So she does a catastrophe at the house. Yeah. He says that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So then, uh, you know, she takes the police to her home or the children, sorry, the children to her home. The police go to his flat and search it. He's not there. He has left his car keys, his passport, his checkbook. All of his shit is there. He didn't take any of it. You know, modern times, cell phone. He didn't have one. But, (laughs) you know, he'd left all of his stuff at his flat. And of course, uh, you know, which didn't make a lot of sense to me why he would have left all of his identification, you know, if he hadn't planned on taking off, you know, mm-hmm. but anyway, all way wrong. And is not what he meant thought was yeah. going to happen, I think. Right. But he actually had made dinner reservations at the Claremont, the place that he was uh, gambling at. He had dinner reservations there for later that evening. He, he stood up a date. That was supposed to meet him there. So, but why wouldn't he have had his wallet? You know, anyway, or maybe he went back to his flat and ditched it. Anyway, we can get into theories, but that was something that kind of, I thought was kind of interesting. But anyway, so after that, so they had decided he called his mother from a payphone, by the way, and had Mm -hmm. called uh, Madeline Florman from a payphone as well. So then he showed up at another friend's house about 1030, 1130. Uh, Ian and Maxwell, Ian and Susan Maxwell Scott. So their house was 42 miles away from Belgrave where the murders happened. It was around a mile or an hour drive, uh, but they figured he must have been driving really quickly to get there. Mm -hmm. At any rate, uh, Ian Maxwell Scott was away, but his wife was there and she let him in. And he laid out this big tale to her about what happened and that it was this extraordinary uh a bunch of coincidences and he was going to look guilty but he just wanted her to let his children know that he, they were the only thing that mattered to him 
And she absolutely believed him. So Mm -hmm. this is what he told her. He told her that he was walking past their house and he saw through the window Lady Lucan struggling with a man in the basement kitchen uh, that looked like an intruder. And so he ran into the home, ran into the basement, slipped and fell in a pool of blood and knocked himself out. And when he woke up, Lady Lucan was gone. The nanny was dead. And he knew this was going to look really bad. So he fled. That's the story. Yeah. And his family clearly, you know, really wanted to believe that as well as uh, Miss Susan here who believed it. So Mm -hmm. at any rate, so he wrote uh, some letters while he was there. He called, well, he also called Mrs. Florman, uh, his mother. And Bill Shand Kidd, who was another friend of theirs, uh, he was actually married to Lady Lucan's sister. He didn't answer. But at any rate, uh, so he, he did call his mother and checked on the kids at one point. She said he did have the, she did have the children. That was about it there, it sounds like. He wrote two letters to people uh, in envelopes that arrived to the recipients covered in blood, stained, yeah. like smeared in blood, yeah. this man. Oh, my God. Anyway, so he told them that uh, he needed to go. So Susan, you know, he's still at her house. He's frantically calling people, writing letters, ranting, raving, covered in blood. She's believing all of this. She's trying to get him to go with her to the local police to tell his side of the story. And he tells her, no, he just has to get away. And he takes off. And that's it. That's the last time he is seen, at least credibly. or by authorities let's say that by authorities by authorities so the car was found three days later abandoned uh abandoned at new haven there were bloodstains inside of the car that matched up to both type a and type b blood so that's about you know that's pre-dna so there was just typing uh Another piece of bandage lead piping that was similar to what was used in the actual murders and a a bottle of vodka as well. So do you know something really interesting about the lead pipe with the uh, plaster on it? hmm. Uh, When early in their marriage, when she was, when, when uh, Lady Lucan was having problems, you know, with postpartum, Mm -hmm. he would uh, beat her as 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 part of her therapy and he used this cane that he had wrapped plaster around the end of she yeah. said it re- she realized that he made them the same way yeah yeah so why i don't know but yeah yeah strange strange but yeah yes i remember that yeah part of the therapy to not be so depressed you know was to was, beat her yeah, yeah. this guy Ugh. this guy this innocent yeah. guy <laughs> oh yeah so innocent oh my gosh so very innocent so that's basically where the story ends now there is some uh, evidence that he had lost an enormous amount of money gambling over the last uh, couple of days before and that he was in serious financial straits there is uh you know there is a lot of speculation out there about what happened lady lucan actually towards the end of her life she did uh she finally spoke. She finally allowed herself to be interviewed and talk about this. She was 80 years old. And so she did do an, a big interview that was in the media two years ago. And three, four months later, she decided that she had Parkinson's disease. 
uh, undiagnosed, but had decided for herself she had Parkinson's disease and killed herself yeah. because she didn't want to become frail and a burden on anyone and took a cocktail of alcohol and pills and died in that freaking house. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. What a life. After he disappeared, things did not go well for Lady Lucan. She was under a major microscope. She was seriously traumatized. And eventually the state took custody of her children. And they were raised up, I believe, by her brother and sister-in-law. Yeah. But she didn't have much to do with them. And when she died at 80, she had been fully estranged from her kids for 30 years. Yeah. She, uh, and, and in fact, in the interview, the reporter asked her uh, if her relationship with her kids was cold. And she said, all of my relationships are cold. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. It was. It was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And her children, I mean, they actually put a beautiful uh, service on for her after she died. Like, they really tried, you know. Yeah. And one of the things that they said about her was that um, though she was uh, mentally infirm, that's how they re- referred to her as mentally infirm. Well, I'm sure she was. My God, what a yeah. life this poor woman had. Right. But... When she died, she left every bit of her money. There was about 600,000 pounds uh, in her estate, and she left every bit of it to a homeless shelter. Yeah. Now, she cut her kids out completely, and her kids actually said in the news, good, this was a good decision. That's a good place. You know, we, we would we'd support this fully, and they weren't upset about that at all. They actually well, felt they, like that's what should happen. They maintain inheritance rights to their father's estate and to their grandparents. And yeah, they, they're fine. They're I guess fine. Is what I'm yeah. They're fine. The press kind of made it out to be a big, you know, this was her one last F you to her kids. And they were like, it really no, wasn't. no, this was good. It's what should have happened. But yeah. the press uh, had been, you know, I think a big part of Lady Lucan's problem in the glory days, you know, when they were dating and before their first child was born, they were in the press a lot for being so glamorous and living this fancy lifestyle. And then after the kids were born, that really kind of went away. And she, I think, uh, you know, that maybe was a part of the issue for both of them. Yeah. Yeah. I I think so. They really both um, enjoyed the attention and Mm -hmm. then, you know, the mundane sort of set in children and, you know, supporting a family and those kinds of things. And I, I, I feel like that's part of where things really went wrong with him. We'll, we'll get to my assessment of him later. Yeah. Yeah. I think so as well, obviously quite the deal. So anyway, there's a lot of speculation, of course, about where he went and what Mm -hmm. happened. It's in the interview that she did before she died. She said that she thought that he had thrown himself into the propellers of a ferry so that his remains would never be found. She called it his bravest act to kill himself. Um, There was no evidence of that. No parts Mm -hmm. of him were found. And experts feel like if he had indeed thrown himself into the propellers of a ferry, which, first of all, that would have taken quite the aim, you know, to get there now he did no boats but that would have taken mm. quite the aim but also to think that absolutely no part of him would turn up was well, a bit because they were looking i mean they looked for him right yeah in 
in the water there. And I mean, they, they looked for him and didn't find anything. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So that's, you know, that, that theory doesn't really hold a lot of water, but, uh, I, I wondered if she needed to believe he was dead, mm. you know, mm-hmm. I wondered if for her own mental health, after everything that had happened, that she needed to believe that he would never come back. Yeah. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. There was actually a rumor. One of his friends, the gentleman who owned the club where he was constantly gambling away all of his money, he his son owned a bit of a zoo, kind of a hobby farm type, you know, not a zoo for the public, but a zoo for the wealthy and fabulous to go play with tigers kind of thing. Right. And there was a rumor that his, well, his mother told the police that uh, when they came to her door asking if she had any idea where Lord Lupin was, she said last she heard he was being fed to the tigers. (laughs) And (laughs) the police followed up on that. And he said, as if I would feed my tigers such stringy meat. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So apparently... Nah, <laughs> but I, so there is, but there, you know, that was one theory, uh, you know, other theories, of course, were that he killed himself in some other way where he was, his body was never recovered. The biggest going theory was that some of his high and mighty cronies, some of the good old boys club sheltered him and smuggled him out of the country and got him set up somewhere else. That is the theory that a lot of people uh, have still believed. And there have been many, many sightings of Lord Lucan around the world over the years. Now, obviously, not all of them have been credible, you know, but there have been sightings of somebody that, you know, people thought was him all over the place for a really long time. Right. A really interesting part of the case is that a man, an English man, when he became of age, he was adopted, was able to access his records and discovered that he had been adopted out in a secret adoption and that his birth mother was a woman named Sandra Rivet, the nanny. And then, of course, in learning, wanting to meet his mother and in learning that this, she was the person that had been murdered by Lord Lucan. He he was actually a construction contractor, or is, he's actually still living, but he uh, wanted to bring her murder to justice and has spent an enormous amount of money, something like 30,000 pounds on private detectives and, and also himself doing a lot of detective work. And he is absolutely certain that he has found Lord Lucan in Australia. Yeah. He fully believes that Lord Lucan ended up in Australia, that he lives there to this day, that he's gravely ill and has been awaiting a surgery that he needs, but he absolutely believes that that is him. Mm -hmm. He's had other leads over the years that didn't bear fruit, you know, and he's been in constant contact with, with uh, Scotland Yard trying to, you know, bring him to justice. And they did tell him that they would follow up on this lead and then kind of blew him off. Yeah. And so they really seem to really care. Mm -mm. No, it still seems like maybe the good old boys club is in action, you know, because it most leads well. And I'm sure part of it is that over the years, they have been handed a gazillion leads by people who were certain that they saw him in South America, in South Africa, 
in Australia, in Italy, in every other country, in the U.S., every country you can think of, somebody saw Lord Lucan. You know? Right. So that is the story. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, not really, because I do have a few more things to say, but I think they'll be part of the psychic analysis. Okay. So what we're going to do then is take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll be ready for the psychic analysis. Alrighty, so here we are on this uh, case of Lord Lucan and his vanishing. So I guess we start at the beginning. Did he kill Sandra? Did he kill his wife? Yeah, totally. I mean, we've established that, right? I mean, oh, yeah, I don't think there's any question there that he yeah. did most definitely. He was commit- actually convicted of it. He was convicted of it uh, in court a year yeah. after the crime. In absentia, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't have any, I have no hang up at all with the fact that he did in fact do it. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, me neither. I, I think that's, you know, I believe that Lady Lucan absolutely told the truth in Mm -hmm. what happened. I, I don't feel like she had any reason to lie, you know, but also his story that he slipped and fell in a pool of blood. There was no evidence of that. No. There was no evidence of more than one man there there was no evidence of two sets of bloody footprints the pool of blood that the nanny died in there was no evidence that someone had slipped and fallen in it and splashed blood all over the place there was just no evidence to support that in any way no so then that takes us to the very biggest question where did he go and how did he get there so you want to take your big stab oh i that was um, a terrible term. <laughs> I will take my big stab. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, you know, I, I checked in with him energetically first because I was very curious just about his makeup. And one of the things that I found in him was a, a, a an inability to attach. You know, in he, in World War II, he and his siblings were evacuated and they were eventually evacuated to the U.S. And they lived in the U.S. for several years. A lot of their growing up was actually in the U.S. And he went to camps and boarding schools and things and was really very separate from his family. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there was some significant psychological damage to him at that time. He really didn't have the ability to make a strong attachment. He didn't have an attachment to his wife. He really didn't have an attachment to his children. As much as he said everything he did was for them, no, no, it wasn't. This was all about control and and the way that he wanted to appear in society. And I I found that interesting. And I've seen that in other people's energy bodies. There's just this void in the heart that makes it so that they really can't attach. And and that was very much what he has. He was um, a a very self-centered person. He was also a hustler Uh and, you know, he had gotten himself out of, if you, if you read the long version of his story, Mm -hmm. he had gotten himself out of, all kinds of financial scrapes over the years. He always mm-hmm. had somebody to turn to, somebody would help him out, always yep. got a bailout over and yep. over and over and over again. And I feel like that's exactly what happened here. My, my, I, first of all, I do believe that he, um, you know, is living um, or, or was living up until just a very short time ago. He's 86 uh-huh. now. 
Um, and you know, I mean, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure he's alive at this moment, but yes, did he live a long time after this event? Yes. No doubt about it. Energetically, the signature is there that uh-huh. he has been alive for a long time. Yeah. Um, my sense a hundred percent is that one of his cronies in an attempt to protect, you know, he was a Lord. And so they didn't yeah. want anybody, you know, associated with royalty looking bad. He right. was the first person to be charged with murder that was part of the royal court in like 250 years or something like uh-huh. that. And so it was, you know, this made everybody look bad. And mm-hmm. so I do feel like that there were some cronies that that ferreted him out of the country, got him set up mm-hmm. with a little bit of money. And, and the, the dude was a master hustler. Yeah. He gambled. He mm-hmm. hustled you know and you got to remember this happened in 1974 you get him out uh, off the continent into a different continent yeah nobody's going to know who he is nobody's going to identify him you know it's not like now with social media and cell phone cameras you know he could just walk away and just assume a different identity and live his life and i feel like that is exactly what he did Mm -hmm. i do feel like it is him in australia Mm-hmm. That that the that the son of the nanny who was killed that he's a hundred percent right. I do feel like that is him. Mm-hmm. I don't feel he's ever going to come to justice. I don't feel that the police are really that concerned about it. They're not going to do anything. No, and they a hundred percent got away with this. Yeah, and got out and used his skills. You know, he he was a very charismatic person. He was, you know, he was that. Um, you know, the, the fact that they called him lucky, even though he lost all the time, you know, he just yeah. had that energy about him that made people want to like him, made uh-huh. people want to help him, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the telling of the story, the way he told the story, I thought was very, very smart in that mm-hmm. it made him look like an idiot. Like yeah. he slipped in the blood and fell and knocked himself out and, you know, was uh, no help in the situation. It It's brilliant. Mm-hmm brilliant manipulation yeah. because how can you be mad at him and how can you expect mm-hmm. that he would have made that story up that truly makes him look bad you know he, he's just a master manipulator and and my yeah. sense of of the whole thing is that he got away with it he got mm-hmm. out to the world he used his skills to gamble and hustle and you know and manipulate things out of people for the rest of his life and he just moved mm-hmm. on with his life and just got away with all of it and and i you mm-hmm. know i don't feel like there was any i don't feel like he had any remorse i don't feel like he was sorry that he did any of the things that he did i and you know i feel like he just as very few of us would have the ability to just walk away from your life mm-hmm. from your children from your family he 100 mm-hmm. percent. i also yeah. think his mother knew damn well that that's what he did i uh-huh. also think she knew where he was the whole time uh-huh. Uh very much she was um an enabler of his and an oh, enabler yeah. long term of his. I don't have any doubt that mm-hmm. she knew all along exactly where he was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. Yeah. She uh I feel like she did that for all of her kids. But mm-hmm. yeah, he was her little baby. Well, you, can- you gotta remember, I mean, they were upper crust, man, and they yeah. did not they would do anything to keep them from looking bad. Anything. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. it would come down on everyone else. And so they would not let him, you know, show up and, and be actually tried in person. And, you know, there's no way that they would have allowed that to happen. 
considering who he was. No, of course not. Of course not. Well, I I really resonate with what you're saying. I agree. I do feel like he is deceased now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's been my feeling too. Is that he mm-hmm. um, at the time that that the man found him in Australia, he was living, but he is not. He now. was dying. Yeah, yeah. But then he did he live eighty five ish years old. You know, long past when this happened. Oh yeah, absolutely. He was far too arrogant to kill himself. Far too arrogant. He would have never done that. Uh, I, this is an interesting thing. There is in looking at all of the sightings that have been placed out there, right? Mm -hmm. Very few of them felt very credible and most of them were in uh, tabloids, but there's one that is actually was published by the BBC that is really interesting. And there was a sighting of Lord Lucan in Africa, in in South Africa. There is a woman who claims that she worked for a man named John Aspinall, who was a friend of Lucan. Oh, right. He owned, said, the, he owned the gambling club. Yes. She claims that two times she arranged for his children to fly to Africa on holiday where he would observe them. Not see them, not talk to them, not observe interface, them. but observe them because he wanted to see his children. Mm-hmm. And I believe that is absolutely true. Yeah. So it is my sense that when he first left the country, that he did go to South Africa for a time. I feel like that may be the first 10-ish years that he was missing, that that's where he was. I feel like at some point he ended up in Australia. I absolutely agree that where he, you know, where the the son found him was absolutely where he went. I feel like uh, South Africa was the first stop, though, and that that's Mm -hmm. where that Aspinall had wealthy friends there that took care of him, you know, and took him in and helped him. He really had set the stage well with his friends that she was crazy, that she was ruining his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was hated by his circles, hated, uh, and really was from the time they got married. And I think he had always created that separation. Mm-hmm. I feel like he got married, uh, not because of love at all, but because it was his responsibility. Yes. And well, he, he had to be married in order to claim his title. That oh, was okay. really important. He had to be married to claim his title, you know, lots yeah. of rules around all that stuff. Sure. So there you go. Yeah. And he married someone who was beautiful, you know, Mm -hmm. and, but it was, I feel like it was pretty contentious, uh, basically from the start, he actually gambled away their wedding gift. His father gave them a certain amount of money for their wedding. And on their wedding night, she sat in the Claremont and watched him gamble it all away. And then some, he actually lost like $8,000 the night they got married or the day they Mm -hmm. got married. He yeah. was a wreck, but at any rate, his friends, I feel like did believe him or at least wanted to believe him mm-hmm. enough that they did help him. So I yeah. feel like Africa, South Africa was the first stop. I feel like that was a place where he could go, where there was less uh, news coverage, where there he was, I believe, living on some kind of an estate where 
he didn't really leave that area for a while, mm-hmm. you know, until things died down. Care of him. Mm-hmm. Yep, taking care of him until things died down. I absolutely believe that his children multiple times were taken on vacations with, uh, you know, people that knew that knew what they were doing yep. so that he could view his children. I absolutely believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. I also believe that as adults, that his children knew that he was alive. Yeah, I do. I, do too. I feel like they did. I feel like they were also fed some tales from their caregivers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we know, their relationship with their mother was pretty challenging. And, you know, she was a challenging person mm-hmm. and also was very set up by the people around her to look a certain way. And I absolutely believe that they played a part in what the kids actually thought of their mother, what they actually thought of their father and of this murder or whatever they believed it to be. I mean, these kids are all adults now. In fact, uh, the son finally, it wasn't until uh, just the last few years that they finally uh, the courts finally declared Lucan dead so that his son could become the next Lord Lucan. Yeah, the eighth, Lord Lucan the eighth. Mm-hmm. Well, and that was one of the things that the the son of the nanny was trying to do is to prove that Lord Lucan was alive. So all of that was not true uh, so that his son could not assume his title. Yeah, yeah. Though no, they've not been good to him. No, not at all. No, there was no, um, you know, recognition of of how that impacted his life or, you know, willingness to to recognize that. But, you know, I I, I feel for Lord Lucan's children because I I have no doubt that they've never been told the truth their whole lives. They don't know. Mm -hmm. They only know what their family members have told them. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's not the truth. No, obviously they've been fed a lot of tales over the years. And I agree with that. I feel like they are very, they've been very quiet in the media, Mm -hmm. very quiet. In fact, uh, the media didn't have, uh, it didn't even have pictures of them, you know, as adults until recent years, they had been, you know, very skirted away. But I do believe that they very well knew that their father was living. I feel like they basically had just been always led to believe that what they needed to do was to just shut up about it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that they were they're protecting him, that they were protecting him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's I think those trips sad. to Africa. Yeah. Well, I think those trips to Africa when they were a little bit younger, that it's true that uh, he observed them, but didn't ever actually speak to them. Mm-hmm. But I think that as they got a little bit older, that he did have direct contact with them as they got old enough for them to be able to trust that they wouldn't blab. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. I feel like he was just 100% protected mm-hmm. and, and that there are a lot of people who have been complicit in this situation. It's really, mm-hmm. really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's a murderer and he, you know, what, what he did to their mother is terrible. And for, for them to grow up with such a lie around them, it's so unfair. Yeah, very unfair. Well, and I believe, too, that after he died and she really, or not died, geez, after he disappeared, uh, you know, and she really fell into a rough place, that her family, that brother-in-law and sister that could have yeah, taken them all in, they could have taken care of her, they could have helped them all. Instead of doing that, they pushed to have custody of the kids granted to them. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. Everybody kind of sided with him. Yeah. Even though he murdered the nanny and tried to murder her. It's it's screwed mm-hmm. up, but it is also, I think, very typical in a very patriarchal yeah. family, which, you know, we're talking about royals here. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising. It, it's sad, but it's not surprising. Yeah. No, it's not surprising. Well, and this was the 1970s too, you know. Yeah. Maybe things would be a little different today, you know. I don't know. Ask Princess Di. She might not agree. Yeah, but, exactly. You know, but at any rate, that that is, well, I think we're pretty much on the same page, you know, about what what did happen there. Yeah. I Do you think that he went on to have another family? I do, yes. I, I, and that was something that um, really came up is that he did. He just started over as someone else, had a different family, had other children, had other relationships. And, and there was, there's something broken inside of him that allowed for that to happen. You know, Mm -hmm. most of us would never be able to do that, you know, just walk away from everyone and start again. But there, this started way before it ever actually happened in him. Right. And I feel like it happened when the separation from his family happened. I feel like it was the being raised so privileged and with such a high, you know, expectation of what his life would be. And then it turned out to not be that because real life when you have a family and children is not, you know, all fun and games and racing boats and cars and and glamour. Yeah. 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 And, and he didn't like that, you know, and it wasn't what he expected, but I do feel that that, that inability to attach that I feel in him is, is really underlying all of this, that he wasn't truly attached to any of them because, you know, even with the kids, he wanted to observe them. Yeah. It was still like, I want to see that they're living up to my expectation, not that I want to have a relationship with them. Ah, yeah, exactly. You know? It's just, it's yucky. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It's awful. It is awful. And, of course, Lady Lucan, you know, obviously never really recovered from all of this trauma. She couldn't no, she ever really. Of the whole thing. And it's just. Yeah. 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 Well, couldn't ever have a genuine relationship with her kids. Couldn't ever, yeah. you know, ever really not be Lady Lucan, you know. I mean, that's that's who she was forever. And. And what happened to her and the press was relentless for many, 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 many years while she was just trying to heal and move on with her life. Yeah. The victim blaming has been just horrifying. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's been extremely unfair. Yeah. Well, that is quite the case. And I agree with you entirely. It's done. There'll be no more justice. I I really believe that he has transitioned now. Mm -hmm. Um. It's just done. I don't really feel like any other, you know, big witnesses are going to pop up in the future that know anything because those who have protected him, I feel like many of them have already died. Yeah. And I don't feel like his children will ever say anything. They have practically said nothing to the press throughout their lives. Even at the time of their mother's death, they made a very small statement and that was it. I don't feel like they'll ever say anything. No, it's very, very much programmed in them to not. Uh They are protecting him, and by protecting him, they're protecting their family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, entirely. Yep. But it does make you wonder if the powers that be, you know, if if Scotland Yard, they did know that he was alive somewhere. They refused to call him dead, you know? Yeah. I mean, they couldn't even settle his probate until 1999. 
Yeah. Well, they I mean, didn't actually officially declare him dead until 2016. Yeah. 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 Which does make me think that maybe at some point they really did think he was going to surface. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, they didn't take leads very seriously. I wonder if they did in the beginning and, and by the end they kind of went. Just had run yeah. down too many. Well, because I read that yeah. they, they proved several people that had, you know, called in a lead that they proved who the person was and it wasn't him. You know, that it was right. somebody that yeah. kind of looked like him. Mm -hmm. Some British guy that sort of stood out in some situation and it wasn't him. Right. So they'd already chased down a billion leads and yeah, very unfortunate for her son who would have really loved to get justice, you know, for her. And yet, yeah. so I, I hope for him that at least knowing that he did find him at the end of the day mm -hmm. is something, you know, I hope something. so, except that he's got to know that he found him and found what he discovered is that he never paid the price for killing his mother. Yeah. You know, no, nope. never. No consequences whatsoever. Nope. He sailed right off into the sunset. Yeah. Yep. For that's sure. That's got to be bitter. That's got to be bitter. Mm -hmm. With all of that being said, the people who did help him, his friends, you have to think that they must, many of them, have had their own skeletons in the closet. Yeah. You know, and that perhaps he had helped them out of jams a time or two. You know, it seems to me like there must be a, you know, a, a secret mill that has run through that aristocratic you know society mm -hmm. we know there has for a very long time but even you know in fairly recent memory here for none of them to squeal you know i'm sure some of that was through fear of retaliation yeah. i'm sure some of that was through fear of their own misdoings or misdeeds mm -hmm. that could get uncovered but i yeah. feel like that's a really interesting that and i think some of it it was through their hate of lady lupin mm -hmm. yeah you know I, I think it was mostly self-preservation. I truly do. I think it was mm -hmm. mostly self-preservation. He knew things about them, just like they knew things about him. And also it didn't look good for any of them in that society to have someone, you know, someone that they had supported and been friends with to, to then be a murderer, that it was really very selfish, really self-motivated. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, so that's our story, and we're sticking to it. That is yeah. the case of the vanishing of Lord Lucan and uh, the, the murder that he committed. I, I guess my very last question is, he moved on. Obviously, he found a new family. I wonder if that's when he went to Australia, is when he remarried mm -hmm. and, and started a new family. But at any rate, do you think he ever did it again or do you think he was a batterer to the second wife and kids? I mean, what kind of a guy emerged from this? Any thoughts? You know, I, I feel like it was um, someone, how he emerged from this is someone who's much more careful. Do I think he still was abusive? Yeah, I do. I mean, that's deep, deeply embedded in him. And whether it was physical or not, maybe not. Maybe he learned his lesson there. But emotionally, psychologically, Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Because that is very much who he is. I mean, he in in his core, he's a a tremendously selfish, narcissistic person. Yeah. And and, and that doesn't just go away. I mean, it, it doesn't. He I'm sure that he played out the rest of his life in the same way. Yeah, certainly. Oh, well, I agree. But I, I was curious to know if you thought he'd ever committed another heinous crime like that. I agree with you. I think, I think that he so didn't. Really, yeah. 
he I, I I feel like he learned a lesson about being not so conspicuous. Mm-hmm. I wondered too if he realized that while his friends bailed him out once, they might not do it twice. Yeah. You know, exactly. that this was kind of it. And in them bailing him out and, you know, shuttering him out of England, perhaps those friendships uh you know, weren't so strong any longer. He wasn't around them anymore. Right. That maybe he didn't really have the connections that he used to have to rely on. He yeah. really couldn't do something like that and feel like maybe he wouldn't have the help. So I, I do think that's true that this was a one shot deal. Yeah. Well, all the love to his kids and to Sandra Rivet's son as well. And anyone else who was injured in all of this, I yeah. know it, it really took that area by storm when it happened. It was a really shocking crime. Yeah. A very frightening thing. Yeah. So but that's I, what I hope we have. have been learned by it, you know, it's always my, yeah. my hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Always the case. True. But, but we can always have hope, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you guys, that is what we have. We want to remind you, of course, to subscribe if you like what you're hearing so that we can continue to bring more content to you, whether you subscribe to your favorite podcast or you subscribe uh, on YouTube. And if you do, like, comment, share. That kind of support means a lot. It helps us a lot. Mm -hmm. We also have a Patreon account. So if you want to become a patron of ours, you can do that over, you can go to Patreon, of course, and look for True Crime Paranormal, and you'll find us there. And you can sign up to become a patron from, there's various levels of support, and that gives you some insider access to more stuff with us, more uh, extra more content, yeah, and things like that. So we'd love to be able to share that with you as well. Also, if you are a Facebooker, our Facebook page has a Facebook group. So our Facebook page is True Crime Paranormal with the Psychic Sisters. We also have a group, which is True Crime Paranormal Podcast Discussion Group. That's a fun place to come and talk about the cases with other people that have listened to our broadcast. And also, a lot of people are showing up over there and suggesting cases to us that we are sorting through to decide if it's a show we could do or not, or, you know, and so that's kind of fun too. So there's lots of great ways to connect with us in that fashion. And we would love to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. That's really fun. Uh, and it's fun to hear everybody's theories and, and sort of their take on the stories that we tell. And we yeah. definitely love um, suggestions about stories to tell. Oh yeah. That's, that's awesome. We love that a lot. <laughs> It, it it keeps me from having to do the dishes because I'm so busy <laughs> researching all of these crimes and then taking, getting my take on them. Anyway, thank you guys for being here, Christy. Thank you. This has been a great, uh, great time. We'll be back, of course, in a week with episode number five. Yay. Can't wait. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.
True Crime Paranormal is hosted by Katie Weaver and Christy Brower and produced by Christy Brower. True Crime Paranormal is a short girl productions podcast.